0: Welcome to Modern Sign Books. If you're interested in what makes your favorite authors tick, then you'll love hearing what they have to say in our interviews. Learn how they got started writing, the books and authors that inspired them, and much more. Meet today's hottest authors as they discuss their lives and writing with art book specialist, Roger Nichols. And don't forget to pick up a copy of your favorite books at bjbooks.com. Here's Roger. Welcome to Blog Talk Radio. Our guest today is a man of multiple talents who comes at writing from kind of an unusual perspective. He actually began his career as a veterinarian and built up a practice in Sacramento that at one point employed 24 people, but... So unaccountably, he grew tired of the 15-hour days and the 60-hour weeks, and on his 30th birthday, determined to give writing a chance. Turns out he was pretty darn good at it. Since then, he's published somewhere north of 35 books, most of them bestsellers, and his works have been translated into 40 languages. Ultimately, he was able to sell a practice, and other than a few hours a month of volunteer cat neutering, he is a full-time writer with followings in different genres. One reviewer put it this way, Writing as James Clemens, he publishes a fantasy novel every year. Writing as James Rollins, he does the same with his fabulous Sigma Force series. The latest in that series, The Demon Crown, released just last week as we record this. We're very pleased to welcome James Rollins.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Yeah. One reviewer says, nobody writes a combination of intriguing science, well-researched history, and breathtaking adventure like Rollins. Those are pretty high words to live up to, but it certainly seems to work out that way.
1: Yeah, of course. That was for my mom. So
0: <laughs> she's very nice. I I understand. Exactly. Yeah. Now I I always like to go back to the beginning, and, and and I understand that you wrote as as a student and gave that up to to go into veterinary school.
1: Yeah, I mean, I always wanted to be a veterinarian. You know, I got that assignment that I think everybody gets some time in their elementary school years. So I was assigned to go home. and and write an essay on what you want to be when you grow up. I remember it was a a point of moral dilemma for the third-grade version of myself. I remember sitting at my desk, blank sheet of paper in front of me, knew I wanted to fill it out as a veterinarian, only proud didn't know how to spell it. I (laughs) thought I could put policemen, firemen, go and play. If I did the one thing that all third-graders are loath to do, I actually went and found the dictionary, looked it up, and filled it out as veterinarian. That determined for third-grade to be a veterinarian. Wow.
0: That's that's amazing, man. That, now I understand, though, that it really was the thirtieth birthday that triggered you to say, "I got to give this a shot."
1: You know, it's one of those those moments where I, you know I I love storytelling. I was the kid in my family that was always spinning tales. I have three brothers and three sisters. You know, we were we raised Polish Roman Catholic. Keep the Polish flag in your window. You had to have at least six kids. My mom had a spare, but they it's, were my my early victims for my storytelling. What my mom called lying. Uh, <laughs> and my goal was to terrorize my younger brothers and sisters if tears were involved even better and I think that's pretty much all I'm doing today but you uh, know I kept reading and it was like throwing gasoline on that side of my brain so there was a desire for me to you one know, eventually walk into a bookstore and see my book on a shelf but it seemed like a pipe dream you know I, I knew the path it made more sense because if you do this this and this you be- can-, can become a veterinarian or mm-hmm. you can do this this and this and fail horribly as a writer so I went for the uh, the veterinary path uh, but I kept reading, and so you know, at some point, you know, the years went by. There was that that little voice in the back of my head saying, you know, you know, you should write that novel. You should, you should try, you should try writing your stories. And it was finally sort of, you know, when you get that that age where you cross certain decades, and eventually, mm-hmm. I thought, you know, I'm never going to do this. I better. I better at least give it a good old college try. So you know, I found a little corner of my house, and I had a little computer and a stack full of blank sheets of paper, and wrote a bunch of short stories that are now safely buried in my backyard. That's and then good. eventually, felt comfortable enough based upon that uh, huge success to write my first novel. So that was the uh, the rough version of how a vet became an author. It wasn't quite that clean. It was there were many ups and downs. That whole process that would take uh, hours to elaborate. Many variations.
0: Yeah. I understand that a couple of, of uh, well known authors maybe have helped. Uh, you said that uh, somewhere I've read something, you said that uh, science fiction author and editor Marion Zimmer Bradley rejected a story of you and gave you a suggestion.
1: Yeah, that was actually the push from, because I thought all I could fit in my, in my life was short stories when I first started to mm-hmm. write. And because I was busy with my practice, I only had cracks in time to write, so I only thought I could, you know, fill writing in those cracks of time. And then I submitted a short story to r- Marion Zimmer Bradley's Realms of Fantasy magazine. This is before she passed away. And she was kind enough to be send me a, a handwritten note back and saying, you know, hey, Jim, I, I sense, you know, uh, that you're a pretty good writer. And I, I think, though, that you're not a short story writer. I think that just from reading the stories you've submitted, that fundamentally your brain is wired to be a novelist. And I could take that one of two ways. I could either take this as a way of and Zimmer Bradley to say, hey, Jim, quit sending us these horrible short stories. Uh, do something, uh, write a novel to leave us alone. Or maybe she's right. So, of course, I'm thinking maybe she's right. But I, I did realize, you know, I prefer to read novels. I wasn't a big, avid short story reader. I preferred novels, and I preferred the fat of the novel better, if it was a series of uh, novels, even better, and that, you know, I should probably be writing from a point of passion. I should be writing what I like to read, and I like to read big books, so maybe I should forego writing these short stories and write my first novel. That was the push to to write my first uh, full-length novel. Uh,
0: And I understand that uh, Terry Brooks uh, was a, a help.
1: Huge. Um, you know, I, I got a lot of rejections for that first short story. I mean, for so the first novel rather, and uh, I was rejected by my first novel by 49 different agents. So it was the 50th agent that saw something in that work to decide to uh, take a chance with it. But during that process, I thought, well, I'll jump ship and uh, maybe I'm not a thriller writer because that was a thriller that I wrote. So I jumped and wrote a fantasy, and I submitted it to a part to a contest at the Maui Writers' Convention, is my first writers' convention I was going to go to. If you're going to go to a writers' convention, go to the Maui Writers' Convention. So I went. There and uh, I was wandering around a sort of a meet and greet tea they had prior to the conference, and I saw Terry Brooks in the crowd, and I thought if nothing else. I'm going to shake Mister Brooks' hand because i was a big fan of his. And he looked at my name tag and goes "Hey, I'm a big fan of yours too." And I was a little confused. I wasn't quite sure whether he was dissing me or whether this was you know what he was talking about. He said, "No, I was one of the judges of the contest, and I read that, that, that short story, and I read that uh, fantasy submission that you had uh, submitted to this contest, and I really liked it." And my Editor standing right over there, and he liked it too when he wants to talk to you. So, based on that <laughs> personal introduction, I was offered a three book fantasy deal by Del Rey Books.
0: Nice. Isn't that one of those moments when everything just comes together and you go, all right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Then I called my agent and said, hey, you know, I, I think I saw my fantasy series. Uh, and, and she goes, well, that's cool because, you know, that, that story that I, that I, that, that 50, this is the 50th agent said, hey, you know, that thriller that you sent me, I've got two publishing houses that are interested in it, that are competing for it right now. So within one week, it went from unpublished to all of a sudden having two different publishing houses and two different genres. Uh, So it was a rather confusing moment of schizophrenia.
0: Yeah, but obviously it's worked out well for you. Um, Reaction is, people really like your books, and I I understand why, because one of the things that you do that I really enjoy is you pepper it with lots of interesting scientific bits and send me going to the research to, to, to... Chuck it further on those, which I love. So thank you for that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have at the end of all my books sort of a "What's True, What's Not" section mm-hmm. where I pull aside the curtain and I, and I lay it out you know, how much the book is real and how much isn't. Uh, both to, to leave some breadcrumbs that if any of those topics, the history of the science, intrigues somebody, you know, they can pick up those breadcrumbs and follow them. Because to me, the the greatest compliment I get as a writer is yes, I like to hear when someone says, "Hey, your book was exciting. you kept me up late at night. That's great." But the greater compliment is when someone says, hey, you know, I closed the cover of the book, and I was interested in that part of the story, and you left those little clues at the back, and I followed them myself. Um, to me, then, I know the book worked more than just popcorn entertainment, that there was some resonance, there was, some, there was enough to pique that you know, curiosity and interest, and to me, that's, that's the, the best compliment I can get.
0: Well, well, consider yourself complimented then, because I love looking stuff up that that you poked at me here for. i I, I really, really liked uh, some of the things that or the concept of the tardigrades and whatnot. Um, but we should probably explain to our listeners that this is a really absorbing scary novel and it starts out with a an island off the coast of Brazil where all the life has been eradicated as it's written here consumed and possessed by a species beyond imagination and that gets me going from the beginning and uh, scientists are attacked and killed and one is alone is, is escaped to spread the news and it gets pretty pretty scary out
1: um, yeah basically we, that that one event you know leads to sort of a uh a major attack on the U.S. is that same species is released across the Hawaiian Islands, sort of a biological Pearl Harbor. Mm-hmm. And then you know, Sigma forces is called in to try to figure out, you know, where this species came from. Because as this, as people begin to die by the hundreds, it looks like the only recourse may be to nuke those islands. So before you know, try to prevent that from happening, prevent this organism from spreading. Sigma forces called in to figure out, you know, where this organism came from, who sent it, and try to find a way to stop it. And
0: I think the in, intriguing thing about it is. Where you go back to discover, you planted the seeds of this way back when with James Smithson and uh, with the different layers of it, uh, Alexander Graham Bell and and with uh, Archibald MacLeish and all. It's really a fascinating history because you also do history very well as well as do a scientific fact.
1: Right, I'm always looking for that that historical mystery, that piece of that history that maybe ends in a question mark, something I can solve within the pages of the novel. And Sigma Force is headquartered at the Smithsonian uh, beneath uh, some old true-to-life World War II bunkers that are located beneath the Smithsonian Castle. They were refurbished and become headquarters for Sigma Force. So as a consequence, I've done a lot of research, both in person and online, and talking to various, you know, librarians and curators at the museums. And so I've got reams of, of sort of in, intriguing details about the Smithsonian. And one of the most intriguing details is about the founding of the Smithsonian, and that there's some mysteries involved in the the origins to this this great institution. Um, many people don't know that the Smithsonian is named after an individual. James Smithson. He was a British geologist slash chemist. And upon his death deathbed, or actually die after he died, uh, his last will and testament was read, and to everybody's surprise, he had left his fortune to the U.S., along with the, his mineral collection that he had accumulated, yet he had no, warned nobody that he was going to do that, and even more intriguing, he had never set foot in the U.S., yet he left his fortune to us, which I thought was sort of odd. And then the mystery deepens that during the Civil War, a fire broke out and it seemed to target specifically James Smithson's paper. That's why we know so little about James Smithson, the scientist, is because that fire seemed to wiped out all his field journals, his research notes. So, uh, and, and his mineral collection for that matter. So it pretty much like cleaned out his history. And then even more intriguing, go forward another 80 years and Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone, he, uh, sneaks across the Atlantic against the express wishes of the Smithsonian regents. He lands in Italy. He travels to where James Smithson was buried in a a cemetery in Genoa, Italy. On a snowy New Year's Eve in 1903, he breaks into that tomb. He secures the skeletal remains. That required some bribery. He lied to folks when he was in Italy, saying that President Theodore Roosevelt had sent him on this mission. It was not true. So we secured those remains, transferred them to a zinc coffin, took those remains back to the United States, where those uh, remains are now interred in a tomb in the Smithsonian Castle. So again, you know, why all that's called duggery? You know, why this guy leave his fortune to us? Was there some other intent behind that fire? Uh, so me as a thriller writer, I, you know, my goal is to is to try to figure out is there a there's there a story behind all that?
0: And it's a fascinating story as well. I think one of the other things that I like about this is there are illustrations throughout this, and one of them is the illustration of the uh, detail work on the sarcophagus, basically where the reinterred Smithsons' bones are lying at the Smithsonian, and the so, some of the details there work beautifully into the story as you've written it. Uh, and yeah,
1: I, I love you know, looking for those, you know, those ways I can, you know, if, if anybody that, you know, reads my book and then travels to the Smithsonian Castle, they can see that tomb in person, they can look at those symbols that, that I add significance to in the story. They can read the, uh, the plaque at the bottom, which actually lists the date of James Smithson's birth wrong. Uh, so when his nephew happened to, uh, to, to write the sort of epitaph to his, his uncle, he got the date wrong, which, becomes also a part of the story. So I yes. like the fact that you can physically go and see some of the stuff and, you know, theoretically cut some of the stuff that's featured in the story.
0: You um, have a couple of hobbies that uh, you're involved with, uh, scuba diving and um, and spelunking, and both of those actually uh, uh, come into play in this because you have uh, a section underwater and a section underground.
1: Right. I mean, I I, I think... You know, it's best when writers write from a point of passion. I think, you know, the fact that I, I love Dive and I love to cave, that, you know, hopefully some of that spark comes out through my fingertips onto that page. And I can also bring, hopefully, some authenticities of that to those scenes because I've, I've experienced that myself. Um, but also, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, to me, it's, you know, I write. A little bit of history, a little bit of science, because that's what I loved to read when I was growing up. You know, I read not just one genre. I loved science fiction. I loved horror. I loved fantasy. I loved uh, uh, war thrillers. I loved spy thrillers. And so, you know, what I write is sort of a blend of all of that type of stuff. And, you know, there's an old adage that whatever music you liked in high school is the music you like the rest of your life. And I think that applies for writers for what they read. So, you know, I'm I'm pulling back from both what I like to read and what I like to do when it comes to constructing these stories.
0: Well, I, I've seen, and uh, at least one of the references I looked up, talking about some of the the heroes that you had uh, as writers as you were growing up, and and I think we share a, a overlap a great deal in, in that in terms of uh, the the various Doc Savage books or or whatnot that we collected ruthlessly as we were going.
1: Yeah, you know, I've got all 182 Doc Savage novels. That's all 181 that were originally published, and and an extra one that was published in the 1970s from Bantam that was discovered in a locker. So, um, you know, there's an old adage of writers naked on the page. Mm -hmm. And I got an email at one point from uh, from a reader who said, "Hey, Jim, you know, I'm enjoying your books, but you know, really, what you're doing is just pretty much knocking off those old Doc Savage novels." You know, and I. (laughs) swing around my chair and I got all these you know, 181, 102 of these books behind me. You know, How did he know that? And uh, so it's somewhat shocking what's revealed, you know. And to me, I I think he's right. I think I'm just doing a modern spin on those old pulp novels from the 30s and 40s. You know, I was an avid reader. I've not just stuck Savage, but also The Spider, The Avenger, mm-hmm. uh, The Shadow. I just like, love these, you know, stories that are just, you know, full of mystery and, and suspense and wonder and science and history uh, and intrigue. It just, uh, you know, again, I think I'm just doing a modern spin on that.
0: Well, and and I have somebody else uh, whose birthday it is today, Steven Spielberg, uh, did a bit of that uh, with the Indiana Jones series, which you have a connection to.
1: I did. You know, I, I've been a huge indie fan uh, going way back, and so and my books have been compared to Indiana Jones for a while. Like Map of Bones, the first book in the Sigma series, was reviewed by Publishers Weekly, and they stated, you know, gosh, this book is you know, it's like a cross between The Da Vinci Code and Indiana Jones. And to this date, I don't know if they were insulting me or complimenting me for that comparison, but I'll, I'll take it as a compliment because I'm a huge indie fan. Yeah. And so, because of that, you know, I was approached uh, to do the novelization to the Indiana the Left Indiana Jones film. And you know, I, there's no way when I get that call, it would uh, yeah. i would going to decline. I remember the day that Raiders came out, um, I had circled on my calendar the premiere date of that of that of that movie. Cause I wanted to be there the first day. I was a huge Spielberg fan already, and. Unfortunately, they did not warn me that they were going to do a sneak preview the week before in my local hometown. And so I had booked a whitewater rafting trip for that day, and I remember just paddling as fast as I could to get out of that river so I could make that sneak preview. I had actually ended up going straight from the river to the theater, so I went literally sopping wet into the theater. Which, by the way, is not a bad way of seeing Raiders because you get that three-dimensional, <laughs> multi-sensory experience. I just wonder about the person who sat in the seat after me in the next. Ooh. Film. Like, it, okay, like, yeah. Actually, that guy really liked that last movie.
0: Yeah, yeah, a whole bunch. Uh, fascinating stuff. Yes. Well, this this is what's fun to look to look at the influences and how they work in and around, and uh, we all. Are recombining the the elements we like best when we when we create things and when we read things we love to see those elements in there you have created some interesting characters here and there are some things that are changing among those relationships and I want to give away the the, the farm here but sure. it's an intriguing development we'll put it that way
1: well I mean that's one and one of the reasons I like series reading them and the reason I like writing them is that you do get the ability, you know, even though I structure each novel, but it's somewhat self-contained so that if the, a new reader wants to jump right in with Demon Crown, they're not going to feel lost. I, I try to feed as much background information you need to, to, uh, not, to be able to Jump right in that thirteen. I don't think anybody's read my novels in order. Uh, they just happen to find them wherever they can. But what it allows me to do when you have a series is you have that breadth of, of character development. You can you can see uh, how these characters change over the course of the series, and so that's mm-hmm. a great deal of, of fun because you're when you're just writing a set of characters for a standalone, you know you're 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 limited on how much of that life you can explore. So by being able to have a series, you know we get to see. The trials and tribulations of, of gray and company's life you know we saw you know gray struggling with aging parents and an apparent dealing with Alzheimer's we saw him struggling his professional and personal lives uh, and we as, as as individuals also in our own lives are struggling our professional and personal lives so when we see you know gray experiencing that same dilemma you know hopefully then when I dangle gray over a cliff <laughs> you're going to be concerned whether he drops off that cliff or not
0: yes Yes, indeed. And when you end the chapter and we said, "Oh gosh, I can't go to bed now. I have to flip the next page and find because I have to know what happens next." Yes, then you've done the Culture job of reading. Yes. I just I get the picture of you sitting there in in uh, with a little begging bowl in your hand and pausing as you talk in the marketplace every so often suggestively rattling the coins in the in the bowl, <laughs> people going, "Oh, yes, yes, give me more, give me more." It's the storyteller's art.
1: Exactly. I mean, our our goal is to, you know to keep you on those pins and needles, and hopefully turning pages late into the night. And mm-hmm. I'm very happy to hear that you know you're late to work or you missed your your first morning school mm-hmm. class because you were mm-hmm. reading late at night. That's that's a great compliment too.
0: It is. It is indeed. When I I noticed that you said you uh, one one interview you said you subscribe to 22 magazines and have news feeds trickling information daily. You're hoovering up stuff all the time looking for new I- I- inspiration, are you not?
1: Yeah, and I'm up to 24 now, 24 oh. minutes. I've gone up two more. Um, yeah, I'm always collecting ideas, uh, those little seeds that might become story, those bits of history, those bits of science. And I they end up just in, in a – I'm looking at it right now, which is one of those cardboard lawyer's boxes. Everybody has them at their house. Mm-hmm. I throw in these tidbits. Uh, when I travel, I walk up to somebody and say, hey, you know, tell me something about your town or your village, something that nobody knows about, a secret. And surprisingly, they will tell you things. I love calling scientists and say, hey, tell me, look over your shoulder and tell me what you're working on right now. Because I want that, I want that as, you know, ripped from the headline current uh, science that I can get. Because usually, if whatever you're reading in a journal or book sometimes is months or, if not years old, I'd rather hear it right from the horse's mouth. And it goes to one box, and I, I try to keep it to one box. I don't want you know one box to become two, two to become four, and then it's you know, James uh-huh. Rollins on hoarders. You know To keep it to one box, I have to sift through it every now and again. And, uh, and just by a pure bit of serendipity, that piece of history, and that piece of science will end up on the floor next to each other or in my hands at the same time. And only then, I never in my own fetid imagination would I ever connect to the two, but because they just happened to be on the floor in my hands at that time, I begin to see a connection, and I will... Uh, Almost like a jigsaw puzzle. I'll see if they fit together, and sometimes I'm wrong, and I they can throw them back in the box. Other times, they begin to snowball into a story, and then I'm ready to write my next novel.
0: And, and that's the way it goes. Yes, indeed. One of the things that that I enjoy about this, again, as I as I as I read through, I take notes, and I have dozens and dozens of notes here. But I was really intrigued by the. The a bacterium that came back to life after being encased in crystals for a hundred million years—that's yep. big oh, time true difference. Right.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm just fascinated by the little tidbits, and you know, one of the reasons why I did that—what's true, and what's not—section is, you know, it sounds unbelievable that these bacteria that were encrusted in crystal for millions of years were still alive, or that tardigrades can survive, you know, radiation and freezing and uh, you know, blistering temperatures, yet. They can come out of that just fine. And so why I started doing that, what's true and what's not, because I was fielding a lot of questions via email and, and via Facebook. You know, is this true? Is that true? Is this true? And rather than having to answer all that, I thought, well, I'll just put it at the end of the book, because, you know, it, there's the old adage that oftentimes, you know, truth is stranger than fiction. And sometimes, you know, elements I'm bringing to the book sound outlandish or sound unbelievable, when those are actually the, the seeds of uh, truth that I build the novels with. <laughs>
0: And it's your background as a veterinarian. I'm, I'm thinking about the the uh, the villain of this piece, which is an invasive species of the worst possible kind. Um, yep. And and I got, the,
1: I, I got the idea for for this this this, this uh, species that's unleashed across the islands because uh, again, I have a lot of contacts uh, in in DARPA and very, various military circles. So they send me things. I'm surprised, like. I don't know if I should be reading this. <laughs> uh, and they sent me this dossier prepared by Homeland Security that listed the top ten threats against the U.S. You know, basically things that keep <laughs> Homeland Security up at night. And within that top five was an, an item that surprised me, and that was the threat of invasive species. You know, we're all aware of the pythons that invaded. Uh, the Everglades, and mm-hmm. now an running rampant. Just recently, there's an article about a 17 foot long python that was discovered in the Everglades. Yes. Or that. there's the Asian carp that are in our lakes and streams competing with our native fish populations. What Homeland Security is worried about is those were just accidental contaminations. What if someone decides to weaponize one of these? You know, With yeah. our ability to genetically modify organisms, to genetically edit organisms, what if a hostile power, an enemy, decides to weaponize one of these species and release it across the U.S.? Why they're concerned is that we have no safeguard against that because a threat can come from so many different directions. And once something like that's established in the environment, it's almost impossible to get rid of, as we've experienced with this python and carp. Uh, so... Two things, so that was sort of surprising to see that on the list. But what you're more surprising was in the top five, which yeah. makes me think, you know, why is it in the top five? What does Homeland Security know that they're not telling us? Do you yeah. know that somebody's working this on a lab somewhere? Is, there, is a, there already a threat somewhere that that's concerning them that it's made the top five? Yeah. Uh, I mean, the usual suspects were there, nuclear threats and chemical attacks. So, you know, to have, have that, you know crest into the top five is, is rather disconcerting. So I decided to, you know, build a novel around that threat and just and, you know, so imagine what if somebody did weaponize the species and release it as, as, a, as an agent of, of destruction in the U.S. You know, what might happen? How might we deal with that?
0: It, and the the uh, answer to that takes us all over the world in many parts and fascinating trips in and of as different aspects of the group work here and there and everywhere, and then all come together at the end with a really really satisfying conclusion. So, uh, uh, yeah, I love kudos. These
1: travel logs. I mean, I love, I love the travel, and I like it because I met, ask people questions when I travel. Um, this the idea for this book became because sitting on my desk, I'm looking at it right now again, is a chunk of amber. In fact, it's just a paperweight. I, I bought it in, in Tallinn, Estonia, along the on the mm-hmm. Baltic coast. Which is a major amber uh, manufacturing center, and um, trapped in that amber is a little beer wasp, and it's been sitting on my desk for eight years. And uh, I knew there's a story there. I just didn't know what that story was until
0: I didn't until this kid. novel. well, you, it, it has it has served you well. I'll put it put it that way. Um, is there anything we've not touched on that you would like to touch on before we roll out of here?
1: Um, just because it is uh, it is December, and I do support a couple charities that I'd like to talk about just yeah. uh, really yeah. briefly. You know, I did a USO tour to Iraq and Kuwait back in the winter of 2010. Uh, once I came back from that, uh, I was really I got to try to do more. It was after watching all these wonderful men and women out there, you know, putting themselves in harm's way. And so I first joined a uh, charity organization called USA Cares. They raise emergency funds for vets in need. You know, if the vets having problem just making a mortgage payment or any travel expenses covered or educational expenses. Mm-hmm. Um, every dollar that USA Cares raises, 95 cents goes into the pocket of their, of a vet, they're that efficient. Um, so it's a great organization, so if you go to usacares.org, you find out more information. There's two buttons, one's a donate button, if you want to donate, which this time of year, they definitely can use some donations. And also, so if you're a veteran, there's a veterans button. So if you're a veteran in need, hit that button and you're going to find out how to, to apply for one of these emergency funds. I also am excited about a new organization called U.S. for Warriors. It's a sort of grassroots out of San Diego. They're spreading nationwide. They have social services for vets. But I'm an advisory board member on their veterans publication uh, division. What we do is we pair authors with veterans, and we mentor them on how to maybe tell their story. Is you know try to encapsulate and, and preserve their tales of their times in the battlefields or their experiences. In the military, and then once that's done, we also sort of guide them through the uh, publishing process, either through traditional publishing or self-publishing. So, oh, again, nice. if there's anybody interested in that, if you go to us the number four warriors org, you can find all about that organization.
0: Excellent. Well, before we go, let's take a quick peek behind the curtain. What's coming up next from the fabulous pen?
1: Well, I'm just t- tidying up on and putting the final eyes and diving the final eyes and crossing final T's on my next Sigma novel. It, um, just give you a little tidbit i'll give you a little bit of history a little history seed that became the story okay
0: that love it actually
1: a, there's a actually a catholic patron saint uh, saint colomba of spain she's a pat, patron saint of witches so mm. not against witches she's a catholic patron saint in support of witches
0: that's I an interesting find
1: weird and fascinating so yeah what i do with that and how weird it is
0: wait till next december Ah, you're so good. i so good. Our, our guest this morning has been James Rollins. The book is Demon Crown. If you like any of his stuff, please check with VJ Books, and they'll get you some signed copies, because he's really good about that. Yep. All righty. Thank you so much for spending time with us today, and keep up the excellent work. We sure appreciate it.
1: I appreciate it very much. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to Modern Signed Books. Make sure to follow and comment on who you would like to hear next. Feel free to check out our other author interviews, and visit vjbooks.com to pick up signed copies of all of your favorite books.